short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Ich bin ein Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. Welcome to the Cold War Show. This is episode 211. Cameron here by myself today. Well, not exactly. We've got a guest, but without Ray, because the guest that we're interviewing today is coming to us all the way from Israel and it's really, really hard to get all of our time zones lined up. I think it's about four o'clock in the morning, Ray's time, when we recorded this. My guest today is Dr. Danny Orbach. He's an associate professor in general history and East Asian studies at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And Danny's got a fantastic uh, and entertaining new book out called Fugitives. It's a history of Nazi mercenaries during the Cold War. So I had quite a lengthy chat with him, about 90 minutes yesterday, and um, I hope you enjoy it. Danny, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for hosting me. Now, I love the book. What's better than talking about spies in the Cold War and got a lot of great stories in the book. But I, let's let's talk about the central uh, question of the book, I guess, uh, which to me is what happened to the high-ranking Nazis who didn't end up hanged at Nuremberg and how, after World War II, both Russia and the United States and many other countries were, I won't say happy to employ Nazis, but did it anyway. <laughs> Whether or not they were happy about it, they found them useful. I guess the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of logic there. Kind of reminds me of the USA working with Al-Qaeda and ISIS uh, during the Syrian civil war. Sort of a realist view of geopolitics. Any country will work with anyone, no matter what their past sins, if they think that person will help them achieve their geopolitical objectives. Some of the former Nazis ended up becoming freelance arm dealers. I think it was in your book I read this line, which I'm going to steal. I think I'll put this on a coffee mug. In the Cold War, one man's moral sin was another's necessity. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I love that line. You know, Alan Dallas, who was the head of the CIA, famously said about uh, his Nazi associates after the war, the people he employed, uh, I don't know if he's a scoundrel. There are few archbishops in espionage. He's on our side, and that's <laughs> all that matters. Yeah, he's our scoundrel. Our scoundrel, yes. I just wanted to note that you have to look at both sides. Uh, the Nazis were employed and uh, the Allied forces that employed them. And you cannot understand the phenomena if you don't look at both sides of this equation. So, one word about the Allied powers. The Soviet Union and the United States were at loggerheads after the Second World War when the Cold War began. The word Cold War is very misleading here. We know that the war was cold. By 1947, nobody knew that. And in fact, many people believe that it will become hot very soon. And as the United States and the Soviet Union were allies during the Second World War, at least the Western side did not collect enough intelligence on the Soviet Union, because why collect intelligence on your allies? They did not have enough information. And who fought both the Western powers and the Soviet Union 
just in the recent past and collected intelligence on both of them. It was with former Nazis. So their expertise was needed. By the way, I show in the book that not as many Nazis were employed by Western intelligence as some people believe. Some popular authors have kind of ridiculously exaggerated the number of his people. Few dozens, probably. But in any case, that's not enough for an explanation. You have to look at these former Nazis. Because many people ask, why did the United States agree to employ former Nazi criminals? And not enough people ask the opposite question. Why did former Nazi criminals agree to work for the United States or the Soviet Union? You know, they're bitter enemies during the war. And this is one of my main points in the book. I call it the rubbish ship model. The defeat of 1945 was so devastating, so shattering, that if you were sane, even if you were a Nazi, even if you were an ideological Nazi, you had to admit that Hitler was wrong on some, on some points, at least. Otherwise, why there was such a disaster? And it was not hard to conclude, even for believing Nazis, that Hitler's mistake was to kind of rally the entire world against Germany. And even Nazis agreed that it cannot happen again. We cannot be isolated again. We have to choose a side. And therefore, they had to choose something to save from Hitler's rubbish ship. They couldn't choose everything. So the people who served the West chose anti-communism. But in return, they agreed to toss, to throw away racism as an organized principle of the state. Public anti-Semitism, everywhere private anti-Semites in many cases, but at least political anti-Semitism was no longer relevant. And of course, a aversion to democracy because they served the United States. Uh, if you served the Soviet Union, you wanted to keep anti-Westernism, anti-capitalism, but you had to throw away anti-communism. If anti-Semitism was the thing to keep and choose, as it was for some of his mercenaries, which I described, uh, like Alois Brunner, who worked for the Arab world, for him, fighting against the Jews and Israel was the thing to keep and choose. But he had to throw away racism against, let's say, colored people or Arabs. He had to serve Arabs. Mm -hmm. Like, if you are a Nazi during the Second World War, you can cooperate with Arabs mainly. But that the Aryan race will serve colored people would seem ridiculous, kind of, in 1943 or something like that, but it happened mm -hmm. after the war. You had to choose something. You cannot keep mm -hmm. the old package no matter what you did. And this combination mm -hmm. of the Allied power needing somebody who knew about their adversary and the Nazis mm -hmm. choosing what to keep and what to throw away, this combination created the situation I describe in my book of these mercenaries kind of changing sides and working for everybody. Yeah, no, I like I like that. And that's the I guess the fascinating thing about these stories that you tell is in in all of these cases you find Nazis working with and or for their not just their enemies, but uh, the people that they had major ideological differences with only a few years earlier. 
and vice versa. Well, in terms of anti-Semites, I mean, you say private anti-Semites. There were plenty of private anti-Semites in the United States as well. That that wasn't, uh, you know, obviously something that was just a uh, German perspective. But let's start with one of the main characters in your book, probably the main character, I would say. We've talked about him a bit before on our show. General Reinhard Gellin obviously played a very major role. The... CIA started working with Gellin relatively early after the war. He was shopping himself around, wasn't he? Uh, shopping himself to the Americans, sort of saw the writing on the wall. So Gellin's story actually begins in, even in late 1943, I believe, where he and his closest confidence kind of understood that things are going towards defeat as far as Germany is concerned. And they started to think about their own future. And like in a cheap James Bond movie, they took their secret archive of information on the Soviet Union and buried it, that was in spring 1945, in the Bavarian mountains, in kind of a secret cache, a secret treasure of information. Because Gellin was wise enough to foresee, as I said before, that the Soviets and the Western powers will start to fight amongst one another after the war. And no matter if it will be a hot war or a cold war, doesn't matter, you need information on your adversary. And his secret cache of information should have been the solution. And he wanted to trade it not only for his freedom and the freedom of his closest associates, but in order to to get the privilege from the Americans to establish a new German secret service after the Second World War. So you mentioned the CAA. Of course, the CAA did not exist yet in 1945. Uh, In the beginning, Gellin worked with uh, military intelligence, with G2. And in 1947, 1948, soon after the CAA was established, there was a very, very hefty debate inside the U.S. intelligence community whether to adopt Gellin or not, and who should do it. Because G2 said, we don't have money, we don't have resources, we don't care about it any longer, take him. Somebody, take him. Mm. And the CIA volunteered. And it's actually amazing to see how it was done. They sent a young, very inexperienced CIA operative called James Critchfield, he actually came from the U.S. Army. He just joined the CIA. And they sent him to Galen and, you know, write a report, whether to adopt this guy or not. And if you read Critchfield's report, he was very critical on Galen. He didn't think it's a good secret service in any way. But he said, you know, guys, that's what we have. Let's adopt him. And then it became a matter of sunken costs. Because... Gellin didn't function well. He didn't give high-grade intelligence to the Americans. But you know how organizations think. We invested so much in this guy. Ah, can we leave him now? And also they believed that if you will become the intelligence chief of the new Germany, then they would have their own men, like deep inside the intelligence apparatus of a friendly country. And that's why they kind of stumbled along with Gellin, though they never really did it happily, because Gellin was never a good professional. That should be emphasized. 
And he creates this thing called the Gellin Organization, the Gellin Org, which, as you suggested, um, ends up it's sort of run by the CIA for a while. And then when uh, West Germany gets its independence, when the Western occupation of West Germany ends in the 50s, he ends up running West German intelligence. And and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But there was a lot of other, um, obviously a lot of other Nazis uh, that you talk about in the book that ended up working for the US. Um, you know, you talk about uh, people like Klaus Barbie as a name that, well, people of my generation would remember. Tell us about Klaus Barbie. I have to share something which will amaze our listeners. So Klaus Barbie was a Gestapo official, a high Gestapo official, who worked in occupied France in Lyon, known as the Butcher of Lyon, of course responsible to numerous war crimes, a deportation of Jews to death camps, and crimes against French civilians, against the French resistance. And uh, Klaus Barbie was employed by the Americans to give them information. He was employed actually by the CIC, Counterintelligence Corps, which was the American intelligence organization responsible for finding Nazi criminals. And during Klaus Barbie's employment by the CIC, something very funny happened. I don't know if to call it sad or funny, but... It's this kind of weirdities of bureaucracy that you sometimes see in the Cold War. The CIC received a French request to stop working with Barbie. And U.S. officials, high officials said, okay, stop working with this guy. Can't do it, you know, his, his crimes are too heavy. And then the CIC did something astounding. They answered, we stop working with him starting from today. So we obey the order. But for reasons of secrecy, he shouldn't know that we stop working with him. So we are going to give him money. We are going to give him assignments. And we are going to accept intelligence for him so that he wouldn't know that he's unemployed. So I think the CAC was the first organization in world history which who employed somebody so that this person will not know that he's actually unemployed. <laughs> And why would they not want him to know that he was unemployed? So reasons of secrecy. That's what they said. So that he wouldn't run away, maybe, or that he wouldn't work uh, for somebody else. It were bureaucratic excuses, of course. Go to the Soviet Union of and course. work for them. Actually, he did work for Latin American <laughs> so, dictators later, so after he moved to South America. And, you know, most of those were on friendly terms with the U.S. as well. So he was just working for their allies Definitely. in South America. Yeah. Another Nazi the Americans hired, one I hadn't heard of before, was Wilhelm Hottel. You write that he was willing to sell information, much of it bogus, to almost any buyer. You say, I like this, you say people like him had a vested interest to produce alarmist intelligence, emphasising hostile Soviet intentions and the imminent danger of war in order to justify their existence and earn more money for their efforts. You go on to go back to Gellin and you say, Gellin sought to improve his position by instigating a Red Scare. He cautioned the Americans that a war with the Soviets, though perhaps not imminent, was eventually inevitable. 
In a stream of alarmist yet nebulous reports, he warned that the German authorities, especially the police, were infested with communist spies. Without giving specific verifiable details, he even argued that Soviets were providing specialized training to beautiful girls in the forests of Thuringia, planning to dispatch these red sex bombs across the border to spy on NATO troops. Red Sex Bomb, by the way, is the title of my next album. How much of these vested vested interest reports do you think ended up influencing American Cold War strategic thinking at the time? So I think that not so much. I wouldn't exaggerate their influence. First of all, because the threat was real. It's very easy to downplay the threat today Maybe less easy now, as the United States and Russia are at loggerheads again. So maybe now we understand a bit more how people felt in the late 1940s. But again, people could not know that the Cold War will not become hot. And there were several crises, such as the Berlin crisis and other crises, which, you know, it was a real possibility. It was a real possibility. We tend to forget it today. So Gellin's reports and Hertel's reports were garbage. They were exaggerated. They were alarmist. But even without these reports, there was enough alarmist information which was true. So true, Soviet troops were exhausted after the Second World War. They were battle-weary. They were not in a position to put up a fight again, soon again, against a superpower, and yet they were way more numerous than the Soviets had a very big advantage, numerical advantage, over Western troops in Europe. So again, it was a real danger. I want to really, really emphasize it. The danger was not bogus. But having said that, you know, you have a real threat. You have a people kind of living off the threat, like these Nazi intelligence merchants. Because, you know, Hertel was what I call in the book an intelligence peddler. Somebody who is working for all sides, like sending low-grade, selling low-grade intelligence, uh, which is often actually recycled OSINT, recycled open source intelligence to many sites. Of course, he has a vested interest to kind of inflate the danger in order to get more money. Mm. Uh, But it it doesn't say, it doesn't mean that the situation was not really dangerous. That's my main point. You mentioned Galen's Red Scare. And again, this was not only Galen. This was parallel to the wave of Mac- McCarthyism in the United mm. States. Mm. Uh, so Galen was so successful because he kind of uh, exploited the trends of the time. You tell some good stories about Gellin here, I like, too. You say, to keep Gellin's head above water, the U.S. Army supplied him with coffee and cigarettes and encouraged him to fund his operations by selling them on the black market. Indeed, it is often recounted the German intelligence agents in West Germany identified the occupying power their peers worked for, the United States, Britain or France, according to the brand of cigarettes they smoked, which is great. <laughs> that should be a scene in a film. <laughs> One of my favorite anecdotes. It's fantastic. <laughs> and we've, we've talked a lot in our show about how the CIA didn't have funding for a very long time or didn't have official funding to carry out their operations. 
So they were doing a lot of black market operations and taking money out of the Marshall Plan and, you know, looking for money wherever they could to fund their secret operations. But I just love this story about uh, looking at the brand of cigarettes that people were smoking to figure out who they were working for. I would say two, two things, actually. First of all, for me, one of the readers of Cold War Espionage was what happened to American intelligence? You saw all of his uh, OSS officers who fared quite well against Nazi Germany in the Second World War, like Frank Wiesner, and then kind of failing miserably against Soviet intelligence, you know, employing all of his charlatans like Hertel, getting low-grade intelligence, having the ranks infiltrated by double agents again and again and again. Mm. And then you kind of reach to the painful conclusion that maybe American intelligence successes against Nazi Germany were not because American intelligence was so skilled but because German intelligence was so bad during the Second World War. And then when they had to contend with a really experienced, like first grade intelligence rival, the KGB, the GRU, they failed. They did not fail always, they had their successes, you know. I'm not a fan of the book Legacy of Ashes and all of his books that say, you know, that the CIA was 100% failure from beginning to end. It was not the case. And yet they had very significant failures. And then I reach my second point. If you will bring an objective judge, an intelligence professional, to kind of have final judgment on the Cold War intelligence struggle, he will probably tell you that the Soviet Union won most intelligence battles. Not all. But who won the Cold War? Not the Soviet Union, right? And it makes you think that maybe intelligence is not as important as some people believe. So you may win the intelligence battle and still lose the war. Well, yes. I mean, the Soviet Union entered the Cold War broken economically with 20 million dead after World War II, where the US entered it, the richest country on the planet, controlling most of the uh, most true. of Western Europe controlling the global economy uh, with the bomb and all that kind of stuff too. So they had a lot of they had a lot of cards to play that the Soviet Union didn't have to begin with. At least it's interesting the role of intelligence. Even today, you know we you know we obviously have in modern times plenty of examples of intelligence failures. Uh, you know from nine eleven right through to the 20, 20 years of in Afghanistan leaving just to hand it back to the Taliban that they were supposed to be taking it from 20 years ago. The ability of uh, not being able to find a bin Laden for however many years they were looking for him, 15 years before they caught him. Like intelligence is obviously a very tricky thing to do well, even today. Definitely. And first of all, let's begin with the mundane. In order to have a really successful intelligence service in the global arena, you have to know languages. You have to have people who speak many languages. And that's a perennial problem of American intelligence. It was a problem in the early Cold War. It is a problem today. And it was a problem in between. So in the period I studied, there were some Americans who spoke perfect German. Mm -hmm. 
but not enough. And you had many who didn't, certainly not Russian. And then, if you don't speak the language, what do you do? You have to rely on informants who do speak the language. Mm -hmm. And that's why the U.S. intelligence was so easily fooled by all of his Nazi charlatans mm. who, you know, obviously spoke perfect German. And they could kind of sell U.S. intelligence things that U.S. intelligence was not able to verify and cross-check because there are not enough regional experts who spoke German. Mm, mm. And uh, I, I mentioned before the book Legacy of Ashes, and uh, Tim Viner brings a, a more modern example, I think from the 2000s, where the CIA really needed agents who speak uh, Azeri Turkish. Mm-hmm. And then... One of her best people, who actually spoke the language perfectly, failed the English essay exam. And he was not recruited mm. because he couldn't write an English essay. Mm. And other intelligence services are much better in that, like the KGB, especially in the early years, in the early decades of the Cold War. They had language speakers. They had a host of operatives who spoke perfect German, mm-hmm. for example, mm. or perfect French, mm. or very good English. The Mossad was very good in languages because many Jews who came from all around the world served in the Mossad. And because American intelligence has this perennial weakness of lack of native speakers of various target languages, it got trapped by these charlatans, Nazi charlatans in the early Cold War. Mm. And that's one of my points. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Uh, Being able to speak the language like a native and, and a deep understanding of culture of the country so you're not committing cultural faux pas when you're talking to people and trying to pass as a native exactly another great quote from your book you say germans and americans alike saw the ruined country as a chaotic place where cunning and deviousness were preconditions to survival here it's permitted was the unofficial motto of many many american offers including Colonel William Leibel, the first G2 supervisor of the Gellenorg and Pulak, were mired in corruption and encouraged the German protégés to do the same. You know, I think um, that's, a, that's another thing that we read lots of stories of uh, after the war too, is people not only uh, in places like war-torn Germany, but even in their own countries, like this there's a lot of people trying to build little empires for themselves to make what they, you know, take what they can. They're living in, uh, you know, living large in these countries uh, on, you know, their uh, expense accounts and their salaries and they've, they've got a good life. They don't want to give it up. So they're, they have an incentive, a vested interest to, keep the whole operation running too, like they do back at home. You know, we've told stories of like empire builders in the CIA, whether it's the Dulles brothers or Frank Visner or any of these guys, um, they're trying to build up the scare in their country so they can get money out of Congress and, you know, add another couple of thousand people to their staff and build their little empire. Everyone has vested interests in selling a certain kind of narrative to their superiors, right? You know, there are two issues here, which I'd like to expand on. 
First is what you just said, the expansion of bureaucracy. Like the self-leaking ice cream cone. This bureaucracy that exists for bureaucracy's sake. Uh, I would really uh, recommend the book, The Parkinson's, The Parkinson Laws, for our listeners, which shows how bureaucracy expands uh, only for the reason of expanding, and it actually shows how it works. And it's true for intelligence bureaucracies, just like for any other. So this is very obvious. But there is another issue here, which is a bit more hidden. Ruined Germany was a corrupted scene. It was a place full of spies, mercenaries, people who struggled to earn a living and were, you know, kind of could do everything. A lot of American money. They just poured in. And this is a, a recipe for corruption. This is true for warlord-infested countries as well. And in my other book, I show, uh, I wrote a book about uh, the Japanese army, and I worked a lot on Japanese, uh, imperial Japanese intelligence. And I showed how Japanese intelligence became corrupted to the core when it started to maneuver inside warlord China, which was a very corrupted scene. So if you send your intelligence organization to launch covert ops, or to collect information in a corrupted scene, like post-war Germany, mm. like warlord China, mm. like Afghanistan, mm. you could be certain mm. that your intelligence agency will be infested with corruption as well. Mm. Working in a corrupted scene corrupts. Mm. And the sentence I qu you quoted, here it's permitted, mm. I think it's a very wise sentence, it's actually taken from um, the writings of a Zionist intellectual called uh, Vladimir Jabotinsky, very well known in Israel, mm -hmm. who once said that there are three words that can ruin, completely ruin the integrity of a person, and these words are, here it's permitted, mm -hmm. you know. I wouldn't sexually harass back home, for example, because everybody knows me and it's my community and neighborhood. But when I'm serving in a foreign country, nobody knows me, so I can do all sorts of stuff. And you convince yourself that here it's permitted. Mm. Usually I'm okay, but in this place, everybody's doing mm. it. So that's what happened to American intelligence in post-war Germany. Yeah, it reminds me of the stories that, you know, we've, read about uh, Iraq after the U.S. invasion when the U.S. government, the Bush administration, was literally shipping billions of dollars of cash on pallets to rebuild Iraq. And then when the Pentagon was trying to audit where it all went a few years later, everyone just went, who knows? It just it just went. <laughs> and I could give you another example from, from Afghanistan. Uh -huh. So in Afghanistan, they hired contractors who were probably close to the U.S. Army to build shiny kitchens, super modern kitchens for the Afghan army. There was only one problem. Nobody in the Afghan army know, knew how to use them. They just cooked their own meals in the way they are used to cook their own meals outside of his kitchens, and they remain unused, you know, after paying millions and millions on them. Yeah. Uh, there was an article in War on the Rocks, a national security blog, which I like a lot, a kind of an hilarious article, how to become a warlord who is financed mm -hmm. by USAID. Yeah.
And it's actually it's actually very easy. Particularly if you're putting yourself in the middle of a bidding war, right? I've got lots of people who want me on their side who's willing to pay the most money. You talk a bit about um, corruption and, and front organisations, the Pulak headquarters, Pulak being the, the name of the headquarters of the Gellin organisation, the Pulak headquarters expected its regional and external organisations to support themselves at least in part via black market operations and independent economic enterprises. The external organisation in Karlsruhe, for example, produced Venetian blinds on a small scale, while its counterpart in Bremen ran a petroleum distribution company. Other offices were hidden behind publishing firms or printing presses. Now, this is a classic sort of James Bond story, right, where they have, you know, international import and export business cards. It's it's your classic spy novel stuff, uh, these fake businesses. And it happened a lot. I show in the book that it happened, of course, with the Mossad as well. Uh, there was a, a very famous Mossad operative called Mike Harari, who had a habit of buying companies. He just went on a shopping spree for no apparent reason. He bought a filming company and he bought a boating company. And when he was asked by his superiors, like, why you are spending taxpayer money on that, he said, we may need it one day. So intelligence organizations like to hoard mm. companies so they will be able to use them in their mm. cover stories. And I think this is a very funny and very interesting aspect of the intelligence work. So let me tell the listeners and actually a great anecdote. These companies which are bought by secret services, usually the relations is not direct. It's not that it's written, the Mossad owns this mm. filming company. Does it make sense? Usually there is a chain mm -hmm. of ownership. And this chain of ownership is very, very complicated mm -hmm. and convoluted. It happened in one case during the Israeli-Arab conflict that Israeli intelligence and Egyptian intelligence used <laughs> the same cover company. Because nobody knew that the other was using it. So Egypt tried to, you know, get an agent inside Israel. And the Israelis were first to discover it because it was, they kind of discovered <laughs> through this joint cover company. Uh, so such things happen in espionage. Yeah, that's another film just waiting to be written, isn't it? <laughs> Completely. Both fighting over the same uh, front organization. Um you also, uh, just moving on, with, I want to mention uh, some of the main characters in your book. You talk about Alf, Alfred Benzinger. Uh, I think he was one of the guys in the org that ran mm -hmm. the Venetian Blinds Company, Zimmerle and Company. Exactly. You say, in the org's Pollack headquarters, Benzinger's sponsor was Dr. Kurt Kohler, the director of Group 3, Counterintelligence, yet another Abwehr veteran, with an unreconstructed Nazi worldview. Both Kohler and Betzinger surrounded themselves with lieutenants sporting similar convictions. At the time, Kohler recalled, we were all Nazis and said so quite openly. With Kohler's blessing, Betzinger employed the largest number of SS, SD and Gestapo veterans in the org. One Gestapo agent recruited another, and the red brick building in Gervigstrasse was filled with Nazis and sympathisers. Typically, each referee whitewashed the wartime record of his friends. Executioners became executives. Torturers were transformed into translators. 
In one case, the org sheltered a rapist and former Gestapo informer with the active assistance of the Americans. He was not one of these pompous and intolerant Gestapo officials, but rather hard-working, diligent and modest, wrote a referee for Heinrich Reiser, a brute responsible for anti-Semitic pogroms, torture and murder of numerous victims. Reiser, in turn, recommended and recruited other Gestapo veterans to GVL. I like this. I love this. He was... He wasn't one of the bad Gestapo officials. He was one of the good Nazis. That's, I love these stories, the whitewashing of Nazis by other Nazis. And all of these guys are being paid for at this stage by the American money. Exactly. Indirectly, of course. But yes, paid by American money, at least until 1955, when the Geren organization was paid by West German taxpayer money and not by American taxpayer money. But it is true that Nazis whitewashed one another's wartime past. But I'd like to emphasize something which is, I think, quite important. When I say Nazis, we have to be very careful. Even if somebody had an unreconstructed Nazi worldview, like Kohler, doesn't mean that he wanted to overthrow West German democracy. Doesn't mean that he wanted to pursue a Nazi foreign policy. They knew it's gone. It was gone. They changed their strategies mm. as well. And I, I spoke about the rubbish heap model, and of course, it applies here as well. But they had their Nazi biases. And its Nazi biases were crucial. For example, when looking for communist spies inside West Germany, where would the Nazi, former Nazi look? You know, where would he look? In, inside the left, inside the German left inside the ranks of former resistance fighters. Because for former Gestapo officials, these are the potential traitors, right, mm -hmm. that you have to look for. Actually, there were more spies and communist agents among former Nazis than among German leftists. And they had a blind mm -hmm. eye. They couldn't mm -hmm. see that. And that's why they, you know, they spent their time persecuting left-wing mm -hmm. activists or harmless, and com being completely blind to the fact that very high-ranked Soviet agents infiltrated their own ranks and kind of made an entire mess of the whole organization. I guess you could say they did not see that coming. Yeah. <laughs> I like that joke. Never gets old. So let's talk about the Red Orchestra. This was another term that I hadn't heard of before I read your book. Explain to everybody what the Red Orchestra was. The Red Orchestra, or in German, Rote Kapelle, is an, an invention of the Gestapo during the war that kind of took a life of its own after 1945. So during the war, there were several leftist resistance groups, anti-Nazi resistance groups, inside Germany and in uh, occupied Europe that spied for the Soviet Union. These groups were not really connected to one another. And maybe one of the most influential and important of these groups operated inside the German air ministry. It was led by a man called Harro Schulze Boysen, who was a German Air Force officer. And they gave high grade, very high grade informational intelligence to the Soviet Union. After these groups were caught by the Gestapo, the Gestapo officers believed that all of them were connected 
into one network, though it was never the case. And inside the Gestapo documents, they called this network the Red Orchestra. The term orchestra was a, a well-known Gestapo term. A orchestra or capella means an espionage network or a hostile network. And of course, they called, for example, the right-wing resistance in Germany, the Black Orchestra. So because these were communists, so it was the Red Orchestra. So after the war, former Gestapo officials, including people who were involved in the original investigation of the Red Orchestra, especially a man named Horst Kopko, reinvented the Red Orchestra for the benefit of Western intelligence. And the theory was as follows. The Red Orchestra, guys, was never destroyed by the Nazi regime. The Gestapo touched only the surface. It's actually a very deep network. And it continues to operate now, also after the war, now spying against the West. And who is a member of his Red Orchestra? Of course, everybody was involved in resistance against the Nazi regime. Of course, in the original Red Orchestra, but also in, in other groups. And you know, uh, it was so ridiculous that even people who were acquitted by Nazi courts now became suspects because uh, the court was not for Royna. But it's not the entire story. Uh, in the early Cold War, as our listeners know well, uh, communist spies were caught periodically in Western countries, people like uh, Klaus Fuchs, like the Rosenbergs, and others. And in the imagination of former Gestapo officials, all of his people were part of his mythical, all-pervading, omnipotent mm. Red Orchestra. Mm. Uh, so they tried to sell it to the Western allies in order to get jobs, in order to get money, in order to elevate their own importance. Mm. I mean, the former Gestapo officials. Of course, we need to emphasize to our listeners, it was a myth. Mm. There was no Red Orchestra during the war, and certainly there was no Red Orchestra after the war. Mm. Guys like uh, this fellow, Guy Burgess. People thought he was part of it too, I'm sure. Um, exactly. The Cambridge Five. Cambridge Five, yeah. Well, that, I think that's a danger in intelligence work. When you have a model, kind of an all-pervading model, when you convince yourself that such an organization exists, you can fit the evidence in retrospect. Mm -hmm. So every communist spy you find is ipso facto a member of this imagined Red Orchestra. And it also played into the McCarthyist um, thinking of the Soviet Union in America. Oh, look, they're, they're everywhere. They're so well organized and they've infiltrated everything and we need more money, more resources. We need to clamp down that kind of hysteria and in, inflation of what they thought the Soviet Union was actually doing behind the scenes. And we were not looking at the right places. Uh, again, I want to emphasize the threat was real. There was really lots and lots of Soviet espionage in the early Cold War in Western Europe, in the United States. But while this Gestapo, former Gestapo officials invented their myths of the Red Orchestra, they just persecuted the wrong people, the wrong people yeah. while actually real Soviet agents, former Nazis, mm. 
were operating at their very midst. But even those real spies, like the Cambridge Five, I, I, I got no, um, no sense that they were part of some brilliantly conceived and perfectly orchestrated uh, <laughs> um, spying operation. It was very fly by the seat of their pants, people recruiting other people and funneling information up when they could, but it was very ad hoc. And deliberately so. Exactly. It has to work that way, right? Yeah, that's how how espionage works. No sane sane secret service officer will establish a Europe-wide network. It doesn't make sense. With an org chart. You have sales, you recruit people. (laughs) Yeah, you have handlers. It doesn't work like that. Real espionage doesn't work like that. So I want to to move move on and talk about Heinz Felfet, Nazi hated the British for the firebombing of Dresden, where he was from. You talk about there was a lot of Nazis who came from Dresden that hated the British for what they did to Dresden. Yet he ended up working for MI6 after the war um, and then ends up working for the Soviets, hated the Americans. He and another Nazi, Hans Clements, were tasked to infiltrate the Gelenorg. You said before that Nazis didn't suspect other Nazis. Uh, so they managed to get jobs in the Gelenorg, even though they're working for the Soviets. And they were used for something called Operation Fireworks, a bunch of arrests of Gelenorg spies in East Germany in 1953. And you say in your book, as the spies of the org disappeared into communist jails, the East German propaganda machine began to rail against the Gelenorg and GVL, and the presence of so many heinous Nazis in the latter office provided especially effective fodder for the press. So the the Soviets used Nazis to infiltrate other Nazis, then arrest those other Nazis, and then run a big propaganda campaign talking about how bad the other side's Nazis were that they arrested with the help of their Nazis. It's just... It's beautiful stuff, really. Nazis were a very potent propaganda weapon for all sides of the Cold War. And by the way, we see it now. We see how Vladimir Putin is using kind of imaginary Nazis in Ukraine as an excuse for aggression. And it's not good. It's like the Cold War all over again. And it was done in the early Cold War. But the issue of it, I think it's, I would like to emphasize or to show is that when you plan spies, when your spies or agents infiltrate the ranks of the other side, the intelligence they give you may be important, maybe not as important, but usually it has tactical value, operational value, but it doesn't have often strategic value. What does have strategic value is the exposure of agents. And I'd really like to emphasize it. It may sound weird to the listeners. A spy or an agent may cause more damage when exposed than by the secrets he gives to the enemy. Yeah. Because when Heinz Felfe, for example, was exposed in 1961, there was such a huge scandal that threatened to undo West German intelligence. Mm. 
because people in West Germany was shouting, you were employing Nazis and these Nazis were communist traitors. What did you do? What kind of an intelligence professionals you are? That caused so much damage to West Germany, way more than anything Heinz Felfe told the Soviets when he was an active enemy agent. Yeah. So spies or agents are most dangerous when exposed, not when we are operating. Yeah. That's another lesson of the book. Particularly if they're Nazis <laughs> that you've got on the payroll. And exactly. <laughs> which makes the propaganda value much higher. Yeah. And I think it was the same thing when the Cambridge Five were finally exposed as well, like the damage that they did to the reputation of the Western intelligent agencies was enormous at the time. You're not, you're not very good... And to the British elites. Yeah, not very good spies if you've got spies that have infiltrated your spies. And I think it also had a propaganda value by pointing out this degenerate British elites mm. reinforcing the myth of kind of British downfall. But, you know, a lot of Amer- senior CIA uh, and State Department um, officials were on very friendly terms with at least, you know, people like Guy Burgess. They were, they were shocked and didn't even believe it because, uh, you know, they'd known them for decades. Let's move on and talk. Speaking of Heinz Felfer, um, I want to talk about the Ludwig Albert and the Lily Marlene operation. I completely loved this story in your book as well. Let me let me quote a little bit from it. You say, uh, "Well, so the the story for the audience is that Heinz Felfer, so he's a former Nazi working for the Soviet Union, has infiltrated the West German Gellin Org." Um, but then there's this guy called Ludwig Albert who seems to be hunting. He knows there's a mole in the Gelenorg and he's hunting them. And they seem to think he's getting close to exposing Heinz Felfer and um, Hans Clemens. So this is what you say in the book. This is when I say they here, I mean the Soviet Union. They asked or they asked one of their agents to deposit a secret document in a dead drop under a lamppost in the West German city of Ludwigsburg. Then a second agent reported to the police that he saw suspicious activity near the dead drop. And a third was sent to empty the box only to be arrested by the police. Inside the dead drop, law enforcement found a memorandum with thorough information on the organisation structure and operations of the GVL. It was now clear that a high-level Soviet spy operated inside the external organization. Examining the document, Gellin and his advisors realized that only Betzinger or his deputy, Ludwig Albert, were capable of presenting such a detailed and full picture of the MGB. This is the West German spying outfit. Felfer was no longer suspect as he had left the GVL in the wake of the fireworks disaster and was reassigned to headquarters. In order to protect, in order to protect Felfer, the East, German denou- East Germans denounced him publicly as a Gellin agent and former SD officer. So it's a, a brilliant play here to kind of make it look like the West Germans had caught uh, something going on and got their hands on some secret documents and exposed one of their own guys as a as a mole, which you say Ludwig Albert may or may not have been a, a Soviet spy. It's a little bit inconclusive in your book. Tell us the rest of the story. It was, it was probably was not. I, I try to be careful, but I think 
he was probably was not a Soviet spy. Uh, just a very tendentious reading of the evidence could lead you to such a conclusion. Uh, I think that uh, what we see here is a very, very interesting blindness, which is very common in bureaucratic organizations. You know, in politics, for example, when a finance minister is uh, leaving his job and a new finance minister comes in, and after a few months, there is an economic crash. Most people will blame the new finance minister, though it's more probable that the previous one is even more responsible. And that's what happened with Heinz Felfer. And that's why this operation was so sophisticated. The disaster fell only after he left GVL. And then he was not blamed. Who was blamed? Ludwig Albert was about to expose Felfe. So it was a very, very sophisticated blow. Actually, a textbook operation of intelligence chess games. Mm. Yeah, no, really impressive. Now, you do also say about Ludwig Albert in your book, certainly Albert lied about his finances in illegally collected secret documents because when they raided his, uh, his house or his apartment, they found lots of stuff that he shouldn't have been able to afford on his salary uh, but you go on to say, but this constitutes insufficient proof that he spied for the Stasi or the KGB. He might have financed his luxurious lifestyle by siphoning operational funds, as he confessed before his suicide, and the documents might have been stolen exclusively for the CIC. The police found in his home American, not Soviet or East German, requests for information. So he uh, he hung himself, I think, didn't he, when... This all went down, Ludwig Albert. Yes, he hung himself in jail. Mm. And he was actually an American spy. Right. He was not a Soviet spy. He spied for the CAC. Yeah. Because the CAC wanted to know whether there are Soviet moles inside the Galen organization. So they used him to try to discover that, but then he was accused of being a Soviet spy. That's how the chess games of Cold War espionage were how complicated they were. He should have had the balls that Guy Burgess had. Like when Guy Burgess was uh, accused of being a, a spy when he had to run McLean out of the country and he just went, no, nah, not me, got the wrong guy and just <laughs> kept that up for well, 10 years. Just, no, nah, not me, no, nah, sorry, wrong guy. <laughs> I love that story. And he was a functioning alcoholic too. He was drunk. Most of the time, how do you be a functioning alcoholic, drunk all the time, and still just go, no, nah, not me? But so many people high up in the CAA were alcoholics at the time. <laughs> yeah, they as were well. all alcoholics. Yeah. You know, one should write a book about alcohol and espionage. Yeah. I think it would be a bestseller. <laughs> I think that should be your next book, maybe, Danny. Um, so Felfer himself survived, rose through the Gellin ranks, and you say sometimes he would give them real information uh, on the KGB, which is a classic uh, espionage, double agent kind of move, I guess. You have to give them real stuff so they believe you. You write, on April 1st, 1956, Chicken feed. nine months after Ludwig Albert's death, the CIA handed over the reins of the Gelenorg to the government of the Federal Republic, which had achieved full sovereignty and independence with the end of the occupation. Gelen's organisation now became a federal agency the only external espionage organization in West Germany rechristened, of course, the Federal Intelligence Service or the BND. I'm not going to try and pronounce the German name of the BND because that would just be an embarrassment. But 
So Felfer survives, uh, gives them real information, chicken feed, as you say, to make them think that he's uh, legitimate. But he finally gets exposed in 1961, as you said earlier. The Gelenorg is discredited because it's a little bit embarrassing when your spies have been infiltrated by not only other spies but Nazis, even though the guy running your spy organisation is also a former Nazi, but let's not worry about that right now. He's a good Nazi. Well, now, now here I have to insert a comment. It was not seen that way in West Germany. Because if you define a Nazi as anybody who worked for the Third Reich in some capacity, then almost everybody is a Nazi, except yeah. the resistance fighters, yeah. which were a very tiny, tiny, tiny minority. Uh, Nazi means in this narrow context, somebody who served in the SS, in the SD, in the Gestapo, in really Nazi security organizations. Uh, Gellin was an army officer. So at the time, he was not perceived as a Nazi. This is a very important distinction. Just a soldier. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. If, they, if, if all of Western Germany would have been Nazis. Above a certain age, anyway. All right, let's move on then and talk about other parts of the world and what the Nazis were getting up to. You talk about uh, the Orient Trading Company, Otraco, uh, was based in Damascus. Uh, there's a line in your book where you say, the specialty of Otraco was trafficking arms to the Middle East and later also to non-Arab governments in Asia, Africa, South America and the Caribbean, including Castro's Cuba. In West Germany, Springer, Remmer, and Kruger managed contracts through the Brock and Schnars firm. They procured weapons and military equipment from Spain, Luxembourg, East Germany, Hungary, Bulgaria, Poland, Yugoslavia, and Czechoslovakia. Even the traditional Nazi hatred of communism was no longer that important. In the Cold War, the Otrako leaders saw the Soviet Union as the lesser evil. So these are former Nazis again that are now basically freelance arms dealers. Why was the Soviet Union the lesser evil in their eyes at the time? I think because of hatred to the West. It seems very logical that, you know, being former Nazis must hate communism. That's what the CIA thought, for example. But it's not, it was not necessarily the case. The Western countries were Nazi Germany's enemies, just like the Soviet Union. And for several Nazis, hatred to the West was potent as well. And I would also say that it also, was also influenced by an opinion which was very common in Germany at the time called neutralism. So, you know, the idea was we hate them both. We should be neutral. We shouldn't be, you know, a scene for a third world war and certainly not to serve the West. And we work for everybody who pays us. And if, according to this neutralist thought, if somebody is Germany's friend, then this is the awakening nations of the third world. Because they hate, they are not communists and they are not capitalists as well. So they are Germany's natural allies. There were, such, there were such currents of thought during the war as well. It was not invented post-war out of midair. So in any case, these people want to earn money. First and foremost, they were mercenaries. They were arms traffickers. And the ideological veneer was very, very thin. 
what they did mm. was in a way to serve as communist gate openers. So the Soviet Union did mm. not want to openly support the Algerian rebellion in the beginning. I mean the Algerian rebellion against France, against French colonialism. They did it later on, but it was not convenient to do so in the early years. So where did Otrakov get the weapons from? From Czechoslovakia. That means the Soviet Union. So the Soviet Union found it convenient to smuggle weapons to the Algerians through intermediaries. Later, the, Soviet U- the Soviets did it on their own. So these Nazis were kind of gate openers for communist intervention. But I would like to emphasize at the same time, they were not that important. It's very easy for authors to inflate the importance of their heroes. You know, I could have said, you know, the the Nazi spies that decided the Algerian war. But it was not the case. Uh, Their influence was, I would say, local. But what had strategic value was the French response. The French Secret Service, SDES, started to assassinate these German arms merchants. It began already in 1956 and got intensified later. So they just picked them one by one by car bombs, poisoned darts, shootings, many other assassinations. By doing so, the French poisoned the relationship with West Germany, because the West Germans didn't like, of course, foreign secret services assassinating people on their soil. And, uh, you know, when they pushed these Nazis out of the arena altogether, they brought the Soviet Union in instead. So what I'm trying to say is that the French response against the Nazis was com- not, it, not only that it was completely disastrous, it undermined French interests way more than what these Nazis had done. So sometimes you have a threat which is actually mm-hmm. non-existent, half-imagined, really not important, mm-hmm. but your response to the threat by starting assassinating people, for mm-hmm. example, it causes much more damage than the threat itself. The response is more dangerous than the threat. And we'll talk more about that shortly when we start talking about uh, Israel's response to NASA and Cairo. But sticking with this thing about the Soviet Union being the lesser evil, like it's it's fascinating to me because you say that the, I mean, obviously the Nazis uh, and Hitler hated the communists. But at this stage, the Americans hate the communists you would think that from a former Nazi, you'd go, well, we hate the communists, the Americans hate the communists, the British hate the communists. They're our natural allies. We, we, we all hate the same communists. But the Nazis hated Western democracy as well. And you could not fight everybody. You have to pick and choose. Let me give you an example. Uh, in the early <laughs> you have 50- to pick your enemy. Yeah. You have, it's the rubbish heap model that I described. You cannot save national socialism in its entirety. You have to pick and choose certain elements. But let me tell you an anecdote, which I think is great. It's actually a bonus one. It's not included in the book, as far as I remember. In the early 50s, the CIA had an agent inside a neo-Nazi circle in Cairo. And this agent recorded for the CIA a very interesting debate among the leaders. 
And the leaders debated what to do. Remember, it was the early 50s. If a third world war breaks on German soil, whom to support? Because you cannot be neutral, right? Whom to support, the Soviets or the West? One of the leaders said, we need to support the West. The other one said, we need to support the Soviets. And they started to fight with one another. And then one leader tells to the other, you are a dupe of the Jews and the Catholic Church. And the other leader's response was amazing. He said, yes, you are right. I want to serve the Jews. I want to ally, I want an alliance with the Jews and the Catholic Church because the Second World War had proved that the Jewish people and the Catholic Church are world powers and the German people cannot afford itself to alienate them again as Hitler had done. And this is a neo-Nazi leader in the early 50s. And it just shows you that mm. the reality of the early Cold War forced former Nazis to pick one of her former enemies or several of the former enemies, you cannot mm. fight everybody. So some chose the Soviet Union, others chose the West. Fascinating. Um, talking about the revolution in Algeria that you mentioned before, you, you write that 20,000 Wehrmacht and Waffen's SS veterans volunteered for the French Foreign Legion to earn money, take part in exciting adventures and fight the war of the white race in Algeria. Other Nazis, however, saw the Algerian war in a very different light. The struggle of the awakening Arab world against a corrupted West and world Judaism led and represented by the state of Israel. For Springer, Kruger, Remer and other leaders of Atraco, traditional racism with its demarcation between white and coloured disappeared or receded to the background while hatred of the United States and anti-Semitism went to the fore. So explain to me what the Algerian revolution had to do with anti-Semitism. Is it just the, the idea of the rise of pan-Arabism and that they would then be able to go and defeat Israel? Is that what's going on in their heads, you think? Exactly. Uh, first of all, as I said before, right. uh, it already during the war, there were several influential people in the Third Reich that believed that Germany should be allied with the Arab revolution. Why? Because, of course, uh, anti-colonial revolutions against the British and the French served the interest of Nazi Germany. But after the war, uh, some Nazis said, we don't want to choose the West nor the communists, kind of our former main enemies. We should ally instead with the awakening nations of the Third World. And this had a very uh, important anti-Semitic tone. Because pan-Arabism, by the way, at the time pan-Asianism as well, was very anti-Israel. It was first and foremost against Israel. So if for you, as a for, for, for former Nazi, anti-Semitism is the most important thing to keep and choose out of Hitler's rubbish ship, then you want to fight against Israel. You want to fight against Israel, of course, you ally with Israel's Arab enemies. But then you have to throw racism over the board because you are serving colored people. You have to give up on something. Again, I, I would like to emphasize it again and again and again. You cannot keep and maintain Nazi ideology in its entirety. And this is what these people do. They are choosing mm -hmm. anti-Semitism by being anti-Israeli and serving Arab revolutions. 
you you got to you got to work with someone. Exactly. You got to make money somewhere. <laughs> you got you got to pick someone. So you talk about you've mentioned him before on the show, Alois Brunner, one of the implementers of the final solution in your book. Like he was responsible for uh, a lot of uh, like tens of thousands of uh, executions of Jews during World War Two. He ended up in Syria working for the Assad regime eventually, and they sort of kept him under house arrest for decades because he was a bit of a troublemaker. You say that as a result of a letter bomb, two letter bombs that he received, I think, one in 1961 and where he lost an eye and one in 1980, lost fingers on his left hand. Right. Who was sending him the letter bombs? It was the Mossad. Uh, for the Mossad, the Israeli Secret Service, Nazi hunting was never, uh, you know, it was never the highest priority. Because, you know, you are an intelligence organization of a fledgling, struggling country. You have the enemies of the present. It's much more important than investing your resources in fighting the battles of the past. And as I show, and I can speak about it later, of course, Israeli intelligence employed some Nazis and recruited some former Nazis as well because the battles of the present were more important than the battles of the past. However, there were certain periods in Israeli history especially in the late 60s, late 50s, early 60s, and the late 70s, really early 80s, where Nazi hunting was, it was not the highest priority, but it was a priority. It was a mission to be done. It was after the Eichmann trial, when Eichmann was trapped by the Mossad. You know, everybody was interested in Nazi hunting. And in the late 70s, when a right-wing government came to rule Israel the first time, was elected the first time, and Menachem Begin, then leader of the right-wing Likud, was kind of obsessed about Nazis and the Holocaust. It was very important in his worldview, and he mm. ordered the Mossad to hunt Nazis again. It worked for a very, very, very short period because the Mossad really didn't want to do it. And as everybody watched Yes Minister knows well, bureaucrats and intelligence bureaucrats have many ways to kind of show prime ministers that they don't really want to do that, you know, and they kind of drag it and drag it and drag it until nothing is done. And that's what happened in Israel in the 80s. But in these short periods where Nazi hunting was a priority, Israel was interested, among other things, in killing Alois Brunner as well. So Alois Brunner was one of the most really one of the most evil Nazis active in the Cold War. He was a main accomplice in the final solution, in the extermination of the Jewish people. He was Eichmann, Adolf Eichmann's right-hand man. And he found refuge in Syria. He helped to train the Syrian secret service. He even planned anti-Jewish terror attacks from Syria, though he actually did nothing. He was more a dreamer and a fantasist than a real terrorist. And the Mossad wanted to kill him, but they didn't want to kidnap him or abduct him. It was too dangerous in enemy territory in Syria. So they decided to dispatch him with a letter bomb, letter bombs. It was actually a parcel, a parcel bomb in a 61. And then he lost an eye. And then it was a letter bomb in a 1980. And then he lost fingers. But they were able to injure him, but we were never able to kill him, actually. And he died, I think in your book you say, 
2001. One of the most exciting things for me as an yeah. author was to read the Mossad operational report, the declassified reports. And in my book, you can actually read the assessments after action report in Hebrew handwriting. It actually was really, really, really exciting. You know, very few people have an opportunity to kind of read the handwritten reports of a Secret Service assassin. Uh, this was really, really, really exciting. Mm. Uh, and he died in, a, mm. again, as you said, in 2001. In the late 80s and the 90s, he became unwanted in Syria. He became unwanted in Syria mm. because he was very embarrassing. The Syrians denied that he was ever in Syria. So every time a, a German foreign minister or a U.S. president or a French prime minister came to Syria and demanded the, ex the extradition of Alois Brunner, the Syrians also always denied he was ever in the country. But then this person who should not even exist is being interviewed to the world media. He started to give interviews from Damascus in the late 80s, and the Syrians were really pissed off by this. And they start to close him more and more until in the 90s he really gets into a house arrest and then being kicked out of his house altogether and being thrown into a jail. I think it's very ironic because it's an irony. Because let's say that he was, you know, he would have been judged in Germany, he would have spent a few years in a German jail, then probably released. Even a life sentence in a West German jail is way more lenient than a Syrian jail, right? So in the end, he was punished way more by Syrian hosts than, you know, by any way that a Western country could have punished him. It was the irony of his story. It would have been during Hafez al-Assad, Bashar al-Assad's father, exactly. when he was uh, running things over Brunner there. Brunner died a short while after Hafez al-Assad. Let's wrap up by talking about Mossad and Cairo, I guess, which is the last few chapters of your book. Um, in 1962, July of 1962, the president of Egypt, Nasser, uh, does this rocket parade through Cairo, shows that he's got these weapons. I think in your book you say that they weren't actually functional, but they looked good. They, they, it was like a, more of a, um, it was a show. It was putting on a show, but it, it, they weren't actually uh, able to do much damage, the rockets. But he supposedly had some former Nazis that were in Egypt that were helping him build these rockets, and it led to some panic in Israel about another Holocaust Obviously, a lot of tensions between Israel and Egypt at the time. And you say an informant of Simon Weisenthal told him that Cairo is seething with Germans. They have far more influence in Egypt than the Russians. They control the secret police. They're still training the army. The scientists are developing rockets. West Germans are deeply committed in commerce. German cars bearing German number plates are in abundance in Cairo, but any open inquiry about the Germans is not welcome. Then you go on to say numerous historians and authors uncritically adopted these tall tales and reproduced the names of non-existent Nazis and sensationalist journalists added their own stories to the mix. So how much truth was there in these uh, stories? Very, very little. 
In fact, it's one of the amazing cases of a myth which got so overblown that it still exists in many, many books which are published today, even by university presses on Egypt in the Cold War. Mm -hmm. You can read about these Nazis in Cairo, including people that never existed, at least not under the said names. <laughs> and you have Wikipedia yeah. entries of Nazis that never existed. Mm. And you know, the, the mm. amazing things of this are things which are very easy to cross-check. For example, somebody who is identified as the SS commander of Poland, there was no such designation in the Third Reich. There was no, not one person designated as the SS commander of Poland, for example. Uh, and you have people who are supposed to lead the Gestapo in the city of Ulm the German city of Ulm, but, you know, cross-checking in Ulm archives, this person never existed. And, of course, all com Gestapo commanders are written. We know who they were. Uh, so, uh, Nazis, the presence of Nazis in Cairo was actually very small. But it was, if there were 100 people at most, but no more, and certainly they didn't control Egypt. That's pure nonsense. The only mm. person who controlled Egypt was President Gamal Abdel Nasser. Uh, but, uh, uh, and even the scientists in the early 60s, which maybe were the most important group, they were third-rate scientists. Uh, they didn't really accomplish anything in Egypt. What they did was building things which were unusable for all sorts of reasons. Mm. But they were not important of themselves. And here I repeat a theme which we, you know, we spoke earlier on Otraco. Remember that the Otraco merchants, arms merchants, were not important in and of themselves, but the French response was important. Here it's the same thing. The scientists were not important. Nazis in Egypt were not important. The Israeli overblown response created a world crisis. So the medicine is more dangerous than the ailment. Yeah, we'll get to that in a second. Before we do, though, I want to ask you about this Israeli spy in Egypt, Wolfgang Lotz, the, a.k.a. the Champagne Spy. Why was he called the Champagne Spy? Because he loved a good life, and he lived a very good life in Egypt, and, of course, Champagne is a symbol of good life. I have, I'm not completely certain about it, but I think this term was invented by his U.S. publisher when he published his memoirs in English. <laughs> uh, in Israel, he's usually yeah, right. called the horseback spy because he had a horse farm. And what I discovered in the book oh, is okay. <laughs> he is an incredible spy. So he's a, he was a German Jew uh, who was uncircumcised. And, of course, this is a great asset for espionage because nobody could... Well, I want to ask you about that. That's in my notes. How does that play into it? Was he? What did he have to whip it out to, at certain meetings to prove that he was uncircumcised? Because you know, if you are a spy and your covers cover stories that you are not a Jew, certainly if your cover stories that you were a Nazi officer, as his cover story was, you know, somebody you 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 may bath with someone in the lake, you know, just forgetting about it, and many things can happen. Like I'm fifty, I'm fifty-one years old, Danny, and the amount of men that have seen the tip of my penis uh, are, are down to people that are, you know, I've paid or very good friends, like my usual co-host Ray. 
Like, I don't go, when when does this happen in espionage? Are they just walking around naked, like going to saunas and just whipping it out? I mean, how does this play into it? You may, you know, <laughs> it may happen. And then, you know, let's imagine that a very good friend, like a general, is asking you to, like, come with him to a sauna. <laughs> and you would refuse. <laughs> then you have to say, why you refuse? Uh-huh. You know, it's... It, it, it helped things, let's say so. Okay. But in any case, I think Wolfgang Lotz is the only spy in world history who used his real name in his cover story. Right. Because he had an Israeli name and he had a German name and he used his real German name. How did the Egyptians didn't cross-check it in German archives? Because they could discover he immigrated to Israel. The German Secret Service actually cooperated with the Mossad in running this operation. Uh, so they helped probably hiding his records in Germany. In any case, he was also the only spy in world history, as far as I know, who married during the job. He was a bigamist, so he had a wife in Israel, and he just remarried as a spy, he married a German woman, and, and that's what's unique. He just told his new wife, I'm a spy in Egypt. Want to join? <laughs> I, I don't. And she said yes. <laughs> yeah. As lo- And she said yes, as long as you don't spy for a communist country. Right. Uh, so I think that's kind of two firsts. A spy using his real name and a spy kind of marrying just during the job and in- inviting his newlywed to spy yeah. with him. He was an amazing guy. I think one of the most... <laughs> Fascinating spies in the 20th century. You've got a a quote. I think this is um, from his memoirs. He writes, Cairo and even Alexandria were and still are like a giant intelligence bazaar. Everybody is watching everybody else and either getting paid for it or doing it under duress. Ex-nationals such as the German aircraft technologists and rocket builders must at some stage have been wined and dined by the Egyptian secret police, by military intelligence, by the Israeli secret service, the British secret service, and by many other intelligence organizations. A network of plot and counterplot, a world surrounded by eyes and ears that were impossible to hide from. I've heard these stories before about Cairo during this period. It was just, uh, and they would all go to the same restaurants and the same bars and everyone was watching everyone and it was, it was, uh, must have been a fabulous place to be. Of course, of course it was the small, tiny, tiny, tiny words of rich foreigners in Cairo. Yeah. We have to emphasize that Egyptian society is not so rich and glamorous, was not then and certainly and also not now. And there is an entire world of inter-Arab espionage, of like Arab countries spying on one another, which is also outside of this kind of tiny, tiny bubble of rich foreigners. So it's not the entire story of foreign espionage in Egypt, like far from yeah. it. So we, let's move on and talk about Operation Damocles then. It was this um, covert campaign that you hinted at before when Mossad in uh, August of 1962 decided to start a attacking these Nazis that they believed were helping NASA build his rocket program um, at a place called Factory 333. It didn't go well, um, ended when the Prime Minister of Israel at the time, Ben-Gurion, demanded that Mossad halt the attacks 
Um, the Germans weren't happy about it when uh, they heard that uh, what was going on. They were attacking Germans. Ben-Gurion fired the head of Mossad, Issa Harel, and then had to resign himself three months later. So this is what you're talking about. Their, their response to the threat was worse than the threat itself. Exactly. I think that Mossad itself admits in their kind of in-house studies that I quote all the time, that um, nothing that they did was actually able to prevent or to stop the threat. It just died of itself. In other words, it would have been better to do nothing. Mm. And this is not easy for a secret service to kind of confess, mm. right? Even after the mm. fact. Uh, so their response created a crisis between Israel and Germany. Mm which could have been very dangerous mm. for the young state of Israel because there were many sensitive uh, weapon deals and other deals between Israel and West Germany at the time. Mm. Fortunately, and as I show in the book, Mayor Amit, who inherited the Mossad from Israel in 1963, was uh, savvy enough, along with Prime Minister Levi Eshkol, they were both savvy enough to use this crisis in order to rebuild Israeli-German relationship even in a better way. Mm. But they made the best of a situation which was really bad. Mm. But I must say that I was very impressed by the really sophisticated way they cleaned the mess of Operation Democrats before and even were able to kind of reap some benefits mm. from it. Mm. Yeah, that's high-level diplomacy. And what I argue in the book, and I think it's a very important point here, is that covered ops are useless and dangerous when not connected to a coherent political strategy. Mm. And you can see it with the French assassinations of arms merchants, mm. which were not connected to a coherent strategy to win the Algerian war. And you see it with Operation Democles. But when you examine what Mayor Amit and Levi Eshkol did, you see that their covered ops against the scientists were designed to serve this new productive strategy of Israel towards Germany, and it worked very well. And just to finish up, talking about the head of Mossad, Issa Harel, you write, contrary to all facts and evidence, Issa Harel believed that the presence of German scientists in Egypt, most of them uninfluenced by Nazism or other ideologies, was a sinister Nazi ploy to destroy Israel and exterminate the Jewish people. He even spoke about a revival of Nazism, a totally overblown fear. And then you quote the uh, Amos Manor, the chief of the Shin Bet, Israel's domestic security service at the time. He says of Israel, he was not, in my opinion, quite sane. It was something much more profound than an obsession. You couldn't have a rational conversation about it with him. And, you know, we've seen these stories a lot in looking at, during the Cold War, like these people in senior positions in all countries who just became absolutely obsessed with this idea about what their enemies were doing or how advanced they were, how much they'd been infiltrated. You have not just the CIA, but J. Edgar Hoover and McCarthy and all of these stories of people that just become obsessed. Yeah, James Jesus Angleton, for example. Angleton, yeah. And the Dulles brothers. Yes, another example. Uh, but here you have to add something additional with Israel. The meaning that the word Nazi had at the time. 
the memory of the Second World War was so fresh, and in case of Israel, the memory of the Holocaust as well, that when you said that somebody was a Nazi, it had a profound meaning of being very intimidating. Mm. And in the Mossad report, we actually write about it. Let's say that instead of the German scientists in Egypt, the Nazi scientists in Egypt, right? It sounds very intimidating to Israeli ears. You would have said the West German technicians in Egypt, because that's what they, they actually were. Mm. Sounds less frightening, mm. right? Mm-hmm. But the word Nazi mm. or Nazi scientists mm. had such a profound meaning at the time that it led Israel and others to a completely irrational behavior in a series of disastrous covert operations, mm. which did more harm than good. Mm. Well, Danny, I've taken up way too much of your time. Um, I really appreciate you coming on and having a chat. And um, I, I love the book. thought it was a tremendous read. Fascinating. Um, the book, again, for listeners, go out and get it, Fugitives by Danny Orbach. Thank you so much for your time, Danny. Good luck with the book. Congratulations on it. Thank you, Cameron. Thank you so much for hosting me. An iron curtain has descended across the continent. military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. <laughs>